I'm Tammy Vidund, your host for Executive with a Cause. Today on the show, I welcome Keith Cantley, the Managing Director of Cantley Recruitment. Today, we're going to chat about the good, bad, and hard things of recruitment in the not-for-profit sector. Keith, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tammy. Great to be here. I can't remember exactly how we met. I feel like it was at a Lifeline um, event of some sort, Lifeline Canberra. But I know that you were um, involved in replacing me when I was the CEO at RSBCA ACT, and you found Michelle Robinson to take that role. So we certainly have had a lot of interactions through that process. That's correct, Tammy. It was. And, you know, Canberra's a network place. So it was uh, sure it was somewhere at Lifeline or other not-for-profit events that we've been to, but certainly uh, I remember working closely with you at the, the beginning of that process to recruit your replacement. Well, and I wanted to talk to you specifically because I think there's a lot of people out there that have questions around recruitment. And in the not-for-profit space, that is a bit of a niche with different challenges and requirements when you're trying to think about like things like values alignment. Can you tell us more about your company and what you guys do? Yeah, sure. Um, well, Cantley Recruitment started back in 2005. Um, it was, uh, I suppose, came about... Uh, just by my passion for people and uh, thinking, what am I going to do next in my career? So it really related to a choice that I made. What were you doing before? Well, I was a banker. Oh, so I, okay. I, I worked for a major Australian bank for uh, 15 years and I joined them after leaving school and really built a career there and had a great career working for them for that period of time. But I woke up one morning when, after we'd moved to Sydney and thought, I really don't think I fit here anymore. So I, I quit. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend that to people, but, you know, <laughs> that's something I did at the time. And uh, I suppose to cut a long story short, moved back, to, moved back to, to Canberra and started looking for a job. And uh, I was talking to lots of people and lots of recruiters. And the challenge for me was that uh, I couldn't find a job. Uh, I, I just couldn't find a job. I, I applied to many. I wrote many applications. I made many phone calls and I was struggling. And I said to someone one day, you know, what, what's wrong? What's wrong with me? Why can't I find a job? And they said, well, you're, you're a banker and we're not a bank. Oh. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it really taught me one lesson there that I really had to start to think about how I presented myself to the market because they were seeing me as one thing and I saw myself as something else. Yeah, yeah. I actually want to ask you for some advice about that, especially for people that are thinking about changing careers because you have personal experience as well as seeing it on the other side of that. The Do you remember the first time you um, did a recruitment process for a not-for-profit client? The first time? Uh, it actually... I mean, I remember it was quite a few, but I remember one which was um, was actually for uh, Lifeline Canberra, okay. which was it's a great organisation, mm. and um, they came to me to help them to recruit their new CEO. I mean, I've worked for many not for profits, but that's one that stands out to me as one of my first sort of major sort of CEO assignments um, in Canberra. And why does that stand out for you? Um, well, firstly, because. Um, it was a great role to recruit for. But secondly, it was a challenging role because of the subject matter that I was working on, that, that Lifeline works on. Um, and it really, the board was um, looking for my um, advice and I took great 
uh, responsibility in that because it was my first assignment. I wanted to make sure it was right. Mm. And uh, so it was a it was a lot of parts that made it, um, I suppose, challenging, but exciting. And the organisation had um, uh, had history and people had been there for quite some time. So it was, a, I suppose, at time, a renewal phase of an organisation, mm. which, which is always an interesting part because boards are trying to work out what they need. Well, if people want to know more about Life on Camera, we did interview Carrie Leeson, the CEO there. Uh, you, you probably might have recruited her too as well, but I'm sure you probably recruited <laughs> her previous um, predecessor. Yes. Uh, we did do a show with her, so people can go back to the archives to look for that. I asked you to, to be on the show because of the the fact that it, it feels like a black hole in recruitment. Like if you're in the, especially if you're on the candidates side of it, when you apply for these roles, just like you did, you apply for these roles and then you may or may not hear back from the recruiter. If you do hear from them, it's still such a, uh, I guess, process with a very little visibility to actually what's going on and what the next step is and who's actually considering you. Can you walk us through uh, just the general process for recruiting an executive in a not-for-profit? Yeah, sure. So so from my perspective, um, the first part I want to do is to sit down with the, the board or the hiring committee of the organisation, the representatives, and really understand what the organisation is looking for now. Because that's, that's an important point, what they're looking for now. Uh-huh. Um, and then to understand what... What's the values? What's the purpose of the organisation? What does it do? And why I'm doing that is to get the sense of compatibility to the for the applicant to really understand enough to explain to applicants about the organisation. And then the second part is to understand what sort of level of capability the the, the person securing this role to secure this role would need. Um, Capability is interesting because some organisations are ready where they can take someone who will step up into their first CEO role, mm-hmm. where some organisations are at a point where they actually need someone who's got experience, who's got a track record. And uh, it just depends on what cycle of evolution or cycle of change that not-for-profit is at at that time. Mm. The skill set of each CEO is very different too, isn't it? Like I know personally that I was asked questions when I was applying for the CEO role at RSBCA about HR. And Mm -hmm. I didn't have a strong background in HR, but I assumed that they probably had someone else in the organization that did. But I was great with finances, but not everyone is. So how do you find those skill gaps when you're you're working with the recruitment committee? So so yes, there is... Some CEO roles or not, you know, executive roles in organisations need you to sort of be across everything. So the smaller the organisation is, the more you you need to be across. And then the larger the organisation, there's more, there's more um, I suppose, structural support or more frameworks or more people. So the, the, the way to work through it is to really unpack what the day-to-day life of a um, of, of an executive or a CEO will be in their in their job, and then understand what are the must-haves. You know, if someone doesn't know about HR, then that's not going to be helpful for the organisation. Um, they may not need to know about contract management because there might be someone in the organisation or support in the organisation that can help them across that that through that part. Mm. So it's 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 getting the must-haves first. I look at things in a way that. Uh, when I recruit a position, I first try to understand what's the compatibility and what's the commitment the person needs to take 
on the job mm. and then how much capability do they need? Mm. Because we need all the will and most of the skill. So yeah. there's some things you can learn. Yeah. Uh, so that's the really th- hard part is to really work out what's the part that you can't learn. You've got to have experience or you've got to have applied um, expertise in that area. Certainly the, the the mission fit is probably first and foremost for any not-for-profit to make sure that their executives are aligned with the values, as you say. There's not a lot of candidates here in Canberra, though, that aren't already in existing roles because it's such a small community. So how do you find people that may, you know, be a candidate for a CEO role, but they're not necessarily interested in that particular mission? And yet there may not be that many candidates in Canberra specifically. Is it something where you'll make allowances based on, well, you know, who's available in the marketplace? Do you look outside of Canberra? Like that has to be a challenge, I would think, in this place. Yeah, it is challenging. Um, It's probably not as challenging um, in the exec CEO space as it would be in the mass market, but it's still challenging. Uh, I think that organisations... have a vision that they're going to search the world for for that sort of um, candidate mm. uh, for 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 their role here in Canberra, and sometimes they they end up sort of doing that, but they find the person here. Yeah. Uh, so it's uh, you've got to think broadly. You've got to start broadly and then work backwards to what's practical. The thing, the first thing you know, organisations need to think about is if they they're trying to one attract candidates from elsewhere. It's beyond a job as well. Now we've got to, we've got to think about the reason someone would move. Um, and Canberra is a great place to live and work, and great for the family. All of those really positive things. But that 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 needs to be considered. So in Canberra, if you're looking for executives, I mean certainly there's people in the sector, and there's aspiring people in the sector, and there's people within organisations that can step up to take on roles. There are people that are in 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 government related roles who who want to give back, they want to move out of a larger bureaucracy into something where they can work where it's more tangible, where they can see the outcome of their of their work. So there's those 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 groups of people. And then there's the private sector. There's quite a quite a range of private sector people who have had leadership roles who want to move to from the for profit to the for purpose. And it's helping them to all those groups to sort of uh, demonstrate their expertise and how they can connect to mm. these organisations. The challenge, I think, with employers sometimes is they sometimes look for like-like. They look for someone who looks like them. They don't see the transferable skills. They don't see those things immediately. And it takes a little bit of time um, of, of working with them to see that person. I call it see that left-field candidate yeah. who who's not from their sector um, but will, would be highly successful in the role. Got it. So let, let's talk specifically about people trying to transition from one career path to another. Mm-hmm. You've done it successfully yourself, and I, I was one of those weird people too. Mm-hmm. How how would you recommend somebody doing that if they were coming from, say, the private sector or government, and now that they're very interested in executive role in the not-for-profit space? Yeah. Well, I think first off, it's not an immediate thing. It's, it's a work in progress for someone. So if you think I want to work in the not-for-profit sector, you need to think about what part of the not-for-profit sector you want to work in. Yeah, it's big. It, it's big. So do I want to work in, in sort of humanities or do I want to work in sort of the RSPCA type organisations like you worked at, Tammy? Do, where, do I, where do I want to work? 
probably what it is for me is what is the sector that you're most interested in where you would be interested to sit and talk about, where you have a passion for it, or there's a personal connection where you might have had a family experience where that organisation had supported someone you you loved or or know, um, you might have had experience with them. So it's getting that un, getting that connection first. And then the second phase of that is to start to get to know about the sector. So it's about you have to invest time. Mm. You have to read. You have to mix with the people that mix in that sector. So what you're doing is when you get to preparing an application, you, you are able to tailor your application related to the compatibility to the organisation. Because if you just turn up with very good capability, but you have no connection to the organisation, you don't demonstrate any connection, your cover letter or your, your uh, in some places, your selection criteria is very generic. Mm-hmm. The organisation will go, it's credible, but I can't see the connection here. Yeah. So you've got to work on that groundwork first, sort of preparing your brand to connect it with, doesn't have to totally connect, but show the connection with the organisation. Yeah. Do, do you coach candidates that are interested in these transitions? I do, yes. I'm not a career coach, but I, I give them career strategy advice around mm-hmm. how they will take themselves um, from A to B. So how do I, how do I project the brand I want to project that, so the organisation puts me on the list. Yeah. Do you, do you have any examples of, I don't know if you can from privacy re- reasons, but do you have any examples of someone who did that well? Who did that well? Um, yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. Um, I suppose I, I, I have to, I suppose I'll, I'll be quite generic, uh, as you'd understand, for privacy reasons. Yeah. But um, I, I, the, the, I've worked for, I suppose, a large, what I'll call program delivery community organisation that was delivering services in, in social services. So uh-huh. they, and they were coming from a large, um, uh, I'll call it a government entity. They worked across large government entities and they wanted to make a transition to a, a, a smaller, uh, still large, but a smaller not-for-profit organisation. So they were able to, I suppose, first bring to the table where their personal connection to the organisation was. So how their, their, the discipline that they, their, their foundation discipline, mm-hmm. where it had come from, and also their personal experience and how this organisation or organisations like this mm-hmm. had, had made a difference in their life. Mm. So they really brought it to a personal perspective. And then they were able to show um, through other experience how they could translate their skills from a very large organisation to a much smaller one. Because that's one of the things that people look at. If you're working in a large, for example, large government department, someone will say, oh, well, you've got all the support, you've got all the resources, you're going to come and work for us and you you don't have all the people running around after you here. I mean, not that everyone in government does either, yeah. but, you know, it's, it's a perception and you've got to convince them that you are adaptable across sectors. Yeah. It's interesting you say that because coming from the private sector where I used to do consulting for both government and private entities and then moving into a CEO role, I'd never seen an organisation so lean yeah. where they were literally, when you said you wanted some sticky notes, they gave you like one pad. <laughs> you know, like it was inc- and you only had yellow ones. <laughs> yes, it was, it was incredibly lean. I'd never seen an organisation that was so resource conscious, but it's, it's actually a very common theme across not-for-profits. Yes. Yes. And you do have to be a lot more self-sufficient because you can't expect people to do those things for you. Um, if, if you were a, a candidate, like I said earlier, 
I find that the process is sometimes really, really uh, invisible in terms of what the next steps are. Say, for instance, I was applying for a CEO role and for an or, uh, organization you were, you were managing that process. Mm-hmm. What can I expect as a candidate to go through that process for that particular role? Uh, transparency in the sense of as much as I can without giving away, you know, confidential information. I suppose I'll take you through the process. Yeah, it might be an easy the... way to explain mm. it. So most people, um, you'll see a CEO role advertised, someone will tell you about it. Um, someone might call you about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you if you see it being advertised or someone tells you about it, I think the first step before you really well, download the position description, have a look at the organisation, the first step is to ring, if it's me, to ring me. Uh-huh. Yeah, lots of people don't. Yeah. Lots of people just, you know, uh, do their research, read the PD, then write an application and submit it. The, the, the first thing I can say to you is make a phone call. Yeah. Ring up and ask, if you ask me, um, you know, this is my background, what's the organisation looking for? Let's talk about the role. Let's understand mm. it a lot more. How do you think I might fit? Now, I'm never going to tell someone not to apply mm. because that's really not my place. Mm-hmm. I mean, everyone should, you know, if they want to apply, should. Um I will give them advice about what they need to focus on. So some core things would be absolutely clear that the person has, but there'll be other things that are not obvious to me in my understanding of the role. So I would would give them some, uh, I suppose, hints around, you know, maybe you need to think about this. So you need to go through a reflective process because being a CEO is a self-selection process yourself. Mm -hmm. You have to see yourself in the job because if you can't see yourself in the job, then that's that's probably not the job for you to begin with. If you have trouble writing your application, then that again will say to you something about the job. So the first step is to make that phone call. Uh-huh. Um, and then in the time frame, you know, most most processes I that I run, um, within within a week, within a week, you're going to hear if you're if you're on the list, if that makes sense, if you're if you're meeting the the short list. Um, you will you will get you know c- contacted by me. Now the biggest challenge for a recruiter is that they they can't contact everybody because mm-hmm. um, you might have had could have had up to 50, 100 applications for some jobs. It depends. Yeah. I mean some are less, but you know there could be volume. So you'll be reaching out to the people that you are from a desktop shortlist to shortlist them, and then you'll be getting them into arranging to have a conversation about their expertise. Mm. So some people that have applied may not have heard and they may not hear for a couple of weeks yeah. because they're still in the process. The process is not complete. I I do try to, um, once we get to a, a shortlist decision, a formal shortlist decision with the panel, to let people know that they're not progressing. Yeah. Because, you know, hanging around, waiting, did I, what's happening there, why is it delayed? Although we're all human uh-huh. and some things can take a little bit longer than others. So I always say to applicants, if you haven't heard, just ring. Just make a phone call and say, where am I at in this process? Um, where are you at in the process? And I will be as um, as transparent I can be around where it's up to. Um, sometimes there's other things that are impacting that might slow things up a bit. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think making that phone call uh, is the first step. When you get a lot of applicants for that particular role, I imagine it's kind of a paper um, process. Yes. 
Is there things that are on a resume or a cover letter that immediately would go in the not do not proceed um, pile? And it, maybe it's not a CEO role. Maybe it's something <laughs> lower than that. Yep. But, but what are some of the things that would be automatic red flags for you? Uh, spelling mistakes. Okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. I know we can make them, but, you know, if it's an important role, that's probably something that, and we've all done it, uh-huh. <laughs> and, and probably beating ourselves up for it, but, you know, that's something that stands out. Mm-hmm. Um, some <laughs> over the years, addressing the application to the wrong job. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sending the wrong cover letter, uh, those sorts of things. Um, they're probably just some of the, you know, very technical things about a job. I think the thing for me is that when I read a cover letter, if the cover letter does not mention the organisation to which you're applying to or show any understanding of the organisation, that certainly goes towards probably not pile. I mean, I will look at the CV again, but if there's nothing, there's been no thought of your connectivity or, or connection with the role, then it's just, you're just throwing an application in. Yeah. I've heard some recruiters say that they don't even bother to look at the at, at the cover letter. They look at the resume first. What, what do you look at first? I look at the resume first. You do? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Um, I look at the resume first, but then I look at the cover letter. Mm-hmm. I mean, some resumes, it's clear that this person is not a... Uh, uh, suitable for the role. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time looking at a cover letter when someone, because people do apply to some jobs that are clearly not suitable for. Right. Um, But predominantly, I look at the resume first Mm -hmm. to get a sense of the person's background. And then I look at the cover letter to see what they've represented, because I want to triangulate in a way what they might be saying in the cover letter to what the CV looks like, because this is Mm. the way you pick up on left field candidates. Yeah, yeah. Because if you just look at the CV you'll only see the skill of the the expertise. If you look at the cover letter, it might give you a bit of a deeper view of the compatibility on why I'm applying to this role. And also they may have been referred by someone who's recommending that they go for it because they think they're a good person. So my job is to understand that that connection. I like the fact that you look at those those left-field candidates. A lot of recruiters win it. If, If you didn't already have CEO on your job um, on your resume or another not-for-profit role that's really obvious, then then they've just passed you by. Now, I just spoke with uh, Jean uh, Gisa yes. from Volunteering ACT, and she said one of the things that people don't do well or don't consider is actually putting all those volunteer roles within the resume instead of on the bottom. Yeah. And she thought that was something that people are overlooking. Are you finding that also yeah. to be the yeah. case? They don't. They don't. I mean, I look at volunteering as interesting. I just look at that as a, another skill or an expertise. Just because it was you weren't paid, it doesn't mean it's not a skill or mm-hmm. not something you bring to an organisation. So I think we do, applicants do undervalue that volunteering um, work. I look at um, volunteer in the sense of where they volunteered, what boards they might be on, um, what other community activities that they've been involved in. Because there might be, for example, um, I recruited a role once and this person was coming from uh, the, I'll call it the corporate sector out of Sydney. And they had a uh, uh, quite a business background and they were uh, applying to an industry organisation that um, was in the health sector. Okay. And they didn't have a health background. But in their work for their organisation, their organisation had a, I'll call it a foundation or a, or a, a connection to health. 
and this person had been actively involved in that. Ah. So there was a, you know, that that drawing, if that's highlighted to you, then you can see the connection. They're not complete. It's not completely foreign to them. Right. Um, so yes, I think we should think about how we um, present that um, volunteering or other roles that you're involved in. And I think the biggest challenge, Tammy, is that um, people try to include everything in their resume. Yeah. How long is a resume? Should be. Oh, you know, I mean, that's that's a debatable question, I suppose. <laughs> I don't think you should go more than three or four pages. Yeah. I mean, it's probably a bit too long, but, you know, that's if you're getting into beyond that, you've probably got too much. A resume needs to tell your history, so in the sense of employment history, but in the jobs you don't need to describe everything you did in the job. Mm. You need to describe the responsibilities you had and the achievements you had achieved relative to the position you're applying to. Mm-hmm. So that's what you've got to think about. If it's too um, wordy and there's too much information, people will look at it and go, first off, it's too wordy and it, they're probably everything they're going to do is going to be like that. Right. Um, but we, we, I think we're somewhat trained over the years that resumes are a historical document. Um, when they're not, they're actually a selling document. Yeah, and, yeah. and it's not about leaving core jobs out or, you know, because we will check. Yeah. I will look what's on someone's resume to what's on their social profile. Yeah. So if someone's left a job out on their social profile, but they've got it on their resume or vice versa or dust, dates don't match... I'll start to go, what's missing here? What's something's, it's not transparent. It's not, it's not sharing all the information. Yeah. How, how important is LinkedIn to this process? Um, LinkedIn has become a, you know, a bit in in the social space, a a powerful um, uh, medium in Uh which people search and connect. If you think about how people find others, you know, um, LinkedIn is probably that that leading professional network, uh-huh. and there are others. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, if you look at it as a, a recruitment perspective, LinkedIn has become um, a, a, a tool that uh, recruiters use and organisations use now themselves. Yes, and it's used in the sense of not only um, finding people, but it's also checking people out. I mean, you probably hear that you know I've been LinkedIn stalking you, uh, yeah, and it happens quite a lot. I mean, I'm sure we'll get. LinkedIn stalk today, uh, <laughs> uh, but it but it's that 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 does happen. So it's really important that your your profile um, is kept up to date. I mean, many executives say to me, "Oh, I don't I don't really I've got a profile, but I don't really worry about it." Well, either have one or don't have one. Yeah, nothing sort in of thing. Don't have, and it doesn't. It's a living thing. Like mm. resumes are living things. It evolves, but m- at least make it represent you. And what you want to be seen as in the market and really think about your your messaging. So, I mean, a simple example, a mistake, LinkedIn photos should be professional. Mm. They should be corporate. They're not Facebook, you know, Instagram photos. They are professional. Um, The glass of wine in the hand in a LinkedIn photo is probably not a good one. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And nothing wrong with having a, a glass of, you know, lemonade or something, but it's it's about the you're projecting a brand and you've got to be very um, conscious of that. Do you also look at their other social media profiles? Um, not immediately, not immediately. Um, depend. I mean, I used to for other types of roles. I do Google people, I Google names uh-huh. um, to see what comes up. I I see what um, you know where they might have been and what they might have done, and where things might not have gone quite right. Yeah. Uh, just so that I understand it. So. 
nothing's a secret in this world anymore. No. Um, someone will know someone who knows something about you and even though you think they don't, they will. Um, and uh, panel members will know mm-hmm. when they look at the CV, they'll know someone who knows someone else and they'll know the, the backstory. So th- it's not about hiding anything and it's not, th- we've all got stories to tell. Um, but, yes, you, I look at other other sites or other information. Yeah. Well, if anybody Googles me, which I'm sure people do, I think I spell my last name right, that is. Yes. Uh, they, I have a huge profile on Google because yeah. of all the media I've done, but it's my past. Yes. And sometimes you want to get beyond that past and you want to move forward to something else. Yes. Does that ever cause any conflict for you to, you know, the way that people are doing searches? You'll see what I've done, but not necessarily what I'm doing. Yes, yes. It causes a challenge because you sort of, as a human being, you immediately put you in what you can see, mm. not what you are doing now. It, it, absolutely, it's a challenge. So that's a, it is a reinvention approach you've got to have to that. So if you think about your, you know, you can't sometimes remove what's on online because it's there forever in time, that's as right. we all know, but you can start to evolve the foundation. So if we go back to LinkedIn, you can start to evolve your foundation profile in in, in 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 LinkedIn, for example, and have a narrative of that change. Yeah. So that people, when they look at your your centre of truth, which is their, they would see as the one that you can control, which is your LinkedIn profile, they'll see the the journey. Sadly, I mean, this sounds wrong, but um, people are short of time, mm-hmm. and sometimes we're just lazy human beings. Yeah. Quick, what's the quickest route to get this out? So you have to work harder at um, at uh, making sure people see quickly what you're doing, uh, and that can take a little bit of time to get that uh, on track. Yeah. Mm. I think, well, you said earlier that you had concerns if their resume didn't match their social media profile. And I'm thinking of myself because, you know, surely because I've had such a weird career, I'm, I don't show every experience that I have on my LinkedIn profile. I only yep. show the ones that are relevant for what I'm doing right now mm-hmm. because otherwise it confuses people. Mm-hmm. Does that also cause issues when there's gaps um, in the resume or LinkedIn? Because you just said that you did have concerns when they didn't match. Yeah, I, I suppose it, not that they don't exactly match word for word, but when you can see that the stories don't sort of line up. Mm. If there's an explanation, if it's if it look, it's it's about how it's presented, uh, Tammy, that really is is the important part here. Um, and and when you've worked in the sector for a while, you get to know where people have been. Right. And when something's left off, it's left off for a reason um, sometimes. And and we can all have situations which don't work out. Yeah. And and that that can happen to all of us. And I and I don't think it's about not um, not having them because they are they were something that you learned from. But it's. It's how you represent that is yeah. probably the way to put it. Mm. Well, I always said that a CEO role in particular is the the talking head and the scapegoat. <laughs> so, yeah. Yep. So if the organization makes a major mistake, you know, they're the first one on the chopping Rooster line. Rooster one day, feather dust the next, really. <laughs> exactly. I mean, so so can how how could a um, you know an executive that might have made a mistake, or maybe they didn't make a mistake, but the organization made a mistake, and they they had to um, be the fall person. How can they come back into the sector and um, start again? Because I, there's that chance. I, I know that the stress was incredibly high at some times. Yes. That um, not you necessarily, but an employee can make a serious mistake that, that you would have to pay for. And, yes. you know, how do you recover from those things? I'm sure you've had candidates that have done that. 
Yeah, it, it it is a very tough because it's it's certainly also very personal because it's your your brand mm. and um, but you're taking the the pain for the rest if that makes yeah. sense because you are the CEO the buck stops with mm. you. Um, I think the 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 way I look at it is to center to center yourself on the the good things. So first off, to personally um, center yourself to realize that sure I always play a part, but it wasn't my all my doing, if that makes sense. Yeah. It was a team effort, you know, others, and I took responsibility as a CEO and I've learned from it, but I'm, I'm, I don't have to personally take account because I think it's a, it's a psychological shift as well for you as a person yeah. to move beyond that probably fairly harrowing experience for someone mm. um, to begin with. So there's that personal um, grounding and whether you can do that yourself or through family and friends or, or seek support, but it's about getting that good counsel to, yeah. to ground yourself and realise that um, actually it wasn't short with bad, but it wasn't me that made it that that bad or I wasn't, I, but I'm absolutely accountable. The second thing is to to leverage the the relationships you have, those those true um, I suppose sponsors, those true people that that are credible in the market, who know that you are a good person and you did a good job, and mm. there was that situation. But hey, that wasn't your your doing. To give you that support, because these your sponsors are the key are the key to getting you the next job, mm-hmm. and you want to think about those and you want to hold on them tightly. Um, and I'm not mean use people. It's about having those true relationships with people that sponsor you and support you in the work you do. And that will help you to reposition yourself back into the market. It could take time. It depends on the circumstances, of course. But, um, yeah, it can take time. And sometimes you might just want to take some time out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some space between the happening and the new. Well, I mean, you see people do it. It's... um Interesting if they go from one CEO role to another or one senior role to another. And then you see other people take breaks for sure. I I just keep thinking about the reputational damage anymore. You know, we're all thinking about not just the organizational brand, but there's a personal brand Mm -hmm. behind it as well. Um, I'm sure you've seen some misalignment. But I think think CEOs have to constantly be conscious of their reputational brand, even if things are going well. Mm Mm-hmm. To be conscious of their reputational brand and how are they how are they protecting their personal brand? And this is not this sounds uh, you know it's all about me. It's it's not. You you you're absolutely working hard for the organisation, but you need to ensure that your reputation is sustained. Yeah. And 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 you feel good in yourself that you've done the right thing. I mean. If you think about it as an organisation, you're running an organisation. You have risk. You have risk um, strategies. You have uh, risk. You identify risks, and then you develop mitigation strategies if something was to happen. And I think as a CEO, you need to have that as well. You, yeah. And, uh, and I think a lot of people forget that they've got some highly, you know, polished skills in these areas, but they don't use it on themselves. Yeah. It's they don't very think true. about it for themselves. So I think that's the you know have your own you know, risk matrix uh-huh. <laughs> and how you might mitigate or who you might call on or what you might do if everything does turn, you know, as they say, to custard. Well, I was also just thinking about the the challenge of being associated with a brand mm-hmm. because it, cause you will leave that job eventually. Yes. And being associated with that brand and not having your own brand makes it harder to get recruited later, doesn't it? Yeah. 
Yeah. You, 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 yes, absolutely. You need to have your own brand. Mm. You need to have your own brand, your own person. People need to know you as you. You so happen to work for a particular organisation. Uh, you happen to lead that organisation and your brand aligns, but there might, there'll be a time where you brand, you personally may not align anymore. I mean, I worked for a major Australian bank for 15 years. My, I, I, my, um, I was aligned. And people recognised me as that um, with that organisation, um, but then I worked out that I wasn't. Whilst I had a great career and the, the organisation was doing great things, I didn't feel like I, I I aligned with the brand and the values anymore. Hence, why I went and did other things. Mm-hmm. Now that was more about me, not about them. You yeah. know, they I I made that decision and I was in control of my own brand. Yeah. Mm. Still hard to do. Still it is hard very hard. It is a lot of sleepless nights. Yeah. Uh, a lot of uh, should I, would I, could I um, stuff going on. What would I do if I left? Um, yeah, it is very difficult. It's not easy. Yeah. So tips for an organization that is now trying to recruit a, it might not be a CEO, might just be an executive level person. What are some things that they should be doing now? in the anticipation that they will have to eventually replace their CEO maybe in the next 12 months? Yeah, I think, well, first off is trying to work through um, a discernment process to determine what that CEO needs to look like, not in the physical sense, but what do they need, what, where that, where is the, where is the, the organisation going in relation to its strategies? What are the key, the key pillars that we're going to be focused on? And then what type of CEO will need to, be able to execute the strategy in relation to those pillars. So really getting into, um, you know, some organisations that are a point where they need someone who's very, um, uh, in some ways, somewhat inwardly focused to stabilise and and um, uh, write um, things that might not be going quite quite to plan. Um, they can they might have a deep corporate. Um, operational experience. So they might need someone like that. Mm. Where other organisations might need, some, or a different organisation might need someone who's much more externally oriented, mm. who's much more about building uh, capacity and, and building connection and building the organisation. So it, it's sort of determined, first off, determining what sort of um, person uh, that's going to look like. Mm. I think it's also being realistic in the not-for-profit um, sector on um, what you can afford. <laughs> well, let's, let's talk about salaries because I, I feel like that is, it can be a misnomer, but it's also, there's a lot of validity in terms of that the, that the not-for-profit sector does pay below um, the private sector, mm-hmm. certainly, and maybe be, um, below government depending on the role. What is the general, um, you know, is, is there a standard range of, of executive level um, salaries in this community. Let's just start with our community here because that's what you know. For say, let's go ahead and keep going with the CEO role. Mm-hmm. Does it does it vary that much based on the size of the organization or is it like th- there's kind of a medium? Uh, no, it varies on the size of the organization. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it also varies in relation to the uh, revenue ability of an organisation and where their their funds come from, if that makes sense. Yep. Uh-huh. Um, and so size um, of the organisation does make a difference. Um, and just the whole financial status of an organisation does make a difference. So the the there are some organisations where 
you know, they're they're not they're a couple of million dollar turnover. They're a few, uh, not many staff, but a number. Mm. Uh, but they've got a lot of volunteers or a lot of people that are connected. So lots of stakeholders. And generally, you know, they're they're somewhere. Sometimes those organisations are somewhere in the below two hundred. So there are some around one fifty, one sixty, which is quite a challenge mm-hmm. when you when you're competing against a, a, a corporation that that so you can go and work for, earn that money, but have less stress and 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 not all yeah. the worries and all the support you need. So well, I saw one advertised the other day for like. $80,000 for a full-time role. And I was just like, where are you going to find a CEO willing to take that? Well, you're going to have to work very hard, first off, and you're going to have to find someone who likes a lot of psychic income. So in other words, it's they're doing it more for what the organisation does mm. and they're in a financial situation where they can afford to take a salary like that. But it's it's in many ways, it's not a sustainable, it's not sustainable. Yeah. Um, and organisations, not-for-profits particularly, have to work out where they, you know, where they um, might need to get to in relation to the remuneration of their CEO because uh, there is a point where they they will struggle. Right. Um, and 80000 is way too, I mean, in my mind, sorry to those organisations, but it's way too low based on what you're expecting someone to do as a chief executive officer. And what's the, what's the minimum then that you think is reasonable in this market? Um, for a small organisation, and, and particularly when you take something that's very hard to sort of um, promote is the, the charitable status benefits. So the, the benefits you get for working for a not-for-profit because they have those uh, uh, tax benefits for people that work there. Um, or the organisation has the tax benefits, which can be passed on in relation to fringe benefits tax, etc. I'm not giving advice to anyone, but you know, there are there are good charitable status benefits. Um, so, if people start to talk to me about recruiting a CEO role and it's below 150, I'm starting to struggle a little bit with that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, and that's for a smaller organisation, but mm-hmm. that's starting. To, I mean, I think your number is somewhere at 150 on a smaller organisation plus super plus the the charitable status type right, stuff right. as a as a rough rule of thumb number. Um, the broadly, you know, you get most of them in the around the two hundreds in the sense of you know a, a, a reasonable size not for profit, and then the bigger ones, you know, you, you're in somewhere in the two fifty, maybe more. And but then it also depends on what where the organize what the organization can afford. Yeah, I mean, some organizations just don't have the resources to, so they've they've got to cut their Close to what they can afford. Do they have bonus structures as well? Predominantly not. Okay. No, no. Um, starting to see a little bit of conversation around that, but not not normally. It's just the straight. Um, normally a um, salary, mm-hmm. uh, superannuation. Sometimes more than the standard, but superannuation. Uh, the the fringe benefits, the the PBI benefits or the salary sacrifice benefits, and then it, it could be a vehicle. Yeah. you know, a vehicle on top of that. Uh, those sorts of things. So they can be put into that, the package, but generally that's majority of them. I don't know the not-for-profit sector has, maybe it's a, maybe it's a conflict for them to sort of, you know, they're meant to be giving back and doing more for the community. And then they've got this performance bonus structure, which sort of sounds more private sector. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think people do struggle with that because it does sound like it's a although it's in their interest to increase revenue, that it seems like the, the additional revenue should go back into the organization and not into salaries. I should say that the fringe benefit um, that you mentioned doesn't actually work for any non 
people charities. No, that's right. It doesn't. So, so the RSPCA, no. No, so we didn't have those you, benefits. Yeah, you've got to have the you've got to have that right um, a charitable status. Sorry, you, not all organisations have it, which is well, we yeah. had DGR status. Yeah, but you have to be a people charity to that's get it. That's right. So that that was the difference. Mm. Um, other roles, so there's a lot of organizations that have the CFO level. What, what kind of salary range are you looking for that? In in a, a CFO for an organization, not-for-profit? Yes. Um, that, again, is, um, is variable. Um, I mean, to get a good finance person in this world, I mean, um, the title is, is a bit confusing. It because is, Because yeah. I'm not as an, a deep as expert in that space, but CFO... Some CFOs can be more um, financial controller mm -hmm. um, type roles where they're much more uh, financial operations, all the aspects of the ins and outs of um, paying people and, um, you know, the debits and credits, financial statements. Um, and, but then other CFOs are much more uh, part of the um, the executive team, much more around strategy, business case analysis, that sort of work. Yeah. So it, it sort of is quite... Uh, variable. Um, so I'm not sure I'd want to put an exact number okay. on that one, Tammy, because I'm not as uh, close to it as I could be. But what I say to you is that to get good, someone who's got good uh, in a not-for-profit, good all-round finance skills, uh -huh. you are going to have to pay um, probably more than you might expect yeah. in this market. Um, and I think it's about thinking about how you, how you appropriately manage finance because if you get that wrong, um, it can cost you a lot more than what you're going to have to pay someone. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. The, the fixing it is, is more expensive, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. If that, that finance, you know, gets mucked up um, and, and as a CEO, as a leader, you want, you know, that's your core bread and butter stuff mm. that you need to have to know how your organisation is, is going. Are you seeing that payroll is managed by HR or is it managed by the finance person? Because uh, I think I see it both ways. It is both ways. Yeah. And I think it swings. Mm. And it really depends, I think, sometimes on who's leading HR and who's leading finance and uh, where the organisation is at some cycle of, of that. Um, I, I Do I have opinion on that? I'd, mm, I probably think payroll in some ways is better in finance in some, at, some, at some aspect because it's quite um, financially oriented. It's quite technical. Um, but it can't lose touch with with the human resources mm. um, leader in the organisation either because it's people's pays. If you, if you get that wrong, that'll that'll break culture pretty quickly. Oh, and the complexity here in Australia is just unbelievable with all the awards and if you have um, enterprise agreements yes. on top of that, it, it's so complex. So, so I think it's a it's a it's a model that can. Uh, move from one to the other, but I think it's how it doesn't matter. I don't, it probably doesn't matter where it sits in the organisation as long as it's functional and as long as human resources and finance work mm. hand in glove together to ensure that that it's done properly. Because you know things like underpayment, uh, huge risk, huge huge risk to organisations yeah. and huge risk to directors of of not for profits. For sure, are mm. you seeing? Um, any roles that are getting paid more than the CEO. For example, mm -hmm. um, I do know of one organization where the uh, the lawyer 
was getting paid more than the CEO because of the specialty. And I'm also thinking about CIO roles because technology co costs are so high these days to try to recruit the right people. Mm -hmm. I'm just curious, are you seeing any time where there's actually another individual in the organization making more than a CEO? I haven't in recent times, no, but I can see in some cases where it might happen. Um, that is challenging. Mm. That is a real challenging situation. Um, uh, and I think it's something you would, I'm not sure how long that would work for. It had to be a special person, that's for uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, it's just, a, it's a, it'd be very unique. Mm. Um, I think the, the in the not-for-profit sector, though, organisations need to determine where they might pay a loading. So, you know, they're all, you know, they've got bands and where, where different levels of work sit. But at times I think organisations will need to think about do I need to pay a loading or a premium on the level of the role? Rather than changing the level of the role, I need to pay a premium to access those skills. Right. So and if you're thinking about technology, yeah. you know, that that is a, a real example of where that so for example, a finance manager might be paid a certain amount and then they've got an expert in their system who might be paid the equally the same salary because that's where you can get some salaries that are pretty close. Yeah. But you're buying in their expertise around the system or the technology, which if you offered less than that, you're not going to get You can't, get you can't access the people. Yeah. Are you seeing more and more organisations ask for certain skills, like new roles that are popping up? Yeah, I, th I, don't, I don't know if it's about new. I think the, the world is changing to much more looking for specialisations. Yeah, okay. So I think the world is looking for people that have specialist expertise, which is a challenge for the generalist. Yes. Because the generalist is a generalist. Um, but what I say to generalists is you sort of got to turn yourself up down, upside down and project your specialisations that mm. are wanted because so that's the way you've got to look at yourself. So I think organisations are looking for much more of the specialist who who can do certain things. Examples. Um, so in, in procurement, contract management, um, uh, quality uh, and uh, uh, what I'll call process improvement type work, um, they're not just looking for someone who knows how to improve something. They want to understand, get someone who understands the frameworks around quality and the ISO framework. So, they, yeah. Yeah, so they're, they're being measured, not-for-profits are being measured by their funders to say, and they're being looked at by community, are you meeting the right standards? Mm. So no more can they sort of rely upon someone who's a good administrator, for example, to help them with that. Not that they wouldn't use them, but they'd need those specialist skills, mm -hmm. um, procurement, contract management, finance, human resources even, you know, the, the complexities of human resources. Someone who is a generalist in human resources uh, needs to have specialist skills, yeah. needs to have applied skills. Okay, interesting. Mm. Um, what about directors? Are you seeing directors um, in the not-for-profit sector get paid? Uh, I'm not personally, but I know I've seen that um, not-for-profits are are contemplating that. I even saw one this week um, where there is a process they're working through to pay their pay their directors. How much they're paying, I'm not sure. I mean, that's a, probably a, 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 an analysis or an assessment process I need to work through. But I think there's probably a, a, a little bit of that going on. I couldn't talk about everyone. I mean, uh, but to get the right skills and to reward, to give people something for their, for their work, 
I, I think uh, it could be a, a thing of the future. Mm-hmm. Um, that creates challenges for a not-for-profit because it's a funding issue. You know, you've got to find that mm. money somewhere. And is that money coming from program which is going to directors and, you know, the, the, the conflict that that would, in, in, even in people's minds, that might, might bring? Yeah, I, I think it's a, a timely topic, isn't it? Because I think a lot of charities and not-for-profits are really struggling to recruit the right skill set. And mm-hmm. now that there's such an emphasis on risk, and the director's courses, of course, are bringing that to the forefront of the type of skills you need. It's yep. getting harder and harder to find that that full matrix of skills that you might need for a board. And, mm. and I don't think all directors understand their their fiduciary responsibilities. Mm. I mean, some people think I just want to get on a board because I, I'd be good at it and I have really great skills. Mm. That's really good because we love people that have got the energy and the enthusiasm. Mm. But on the flip side, they've got to understand their their direct personal responsibilities for being a director of an organisation and what they're liable for. Mm-hmm. And not to scare people off because we, we want people to be directors of not-for-profits, but it's to understand those risks and, and make sure that if you don't have the experience to reach out to professional organisations like an AICD or other organisations to to build your your um, knowledge of that mm-hmm. um, sector. The AICD is Australian Institute of Company Directors here in in Australia, so it's a you know professional bodies to make sure you're you're across what your your responsibilities are. And those are getting tighter. I know we have to register now as directors. Yes, that's right. So it, it's it's actually getting more scrutinised and mm-hmm. and you know it's interesting because. The conversations I have mostly in the IT space is around risk mitigation to begin with. Mm-hmm. And I, I really don't think directors understand sometimes the risks that they're willing to accept for the fact that they want to fund something else and not fix some issues. So it's it's interesting that you mentioned that. Yeah, that's yeah, very important. Is there anything else that you'd like to add, just general advice for either candidates or organizations in the recruitment space or employment space that they can do better if they just you know, adhere to a couple of tips? Hmm. Well, first thing I say is recruitment's not easy. It's, it's not a pure science. It's not, it's not an easy thing to do. Um, I would think about the, the key things I would say is try and take your time. Uh, recruitment is sometimes a pressure thing. Someone's resigned. We've got to replace them. We've got to act now. We've got, so try and give yourself the space you can, if you can, whether that bring in someone on an interim basis to fill the role, look at other options to give yourself the space to do, to do it properly. So don't try and um, shorten the process. Mm. Uh, a good process takes, you know, sometimes two to three, three months sort of thing, you know, from beginning to end, sometimes longer. But, you know, it takes time to really do it properly, to, one, find the right candidates, assess them, and then, you know, get get someone on board. And, you know, you might have a three-month waiting period for someone yeah. to join. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's um, take the time. It's secondly, think about compatibility. Really focus on compatibility first. What's going to make this person compatible to our organisation? Because if you get the compatibility wrong, it doesn't matter how good they are they will not be successful, sadly. But compatibility is everything in my mind. Um, And um, think about the people that you want to involve in you with an organisation that you want to, who are you going to help you to do this process? Mm. Who are the people going to give you frank and good advice and constructive contribution to a recruitment process so you get the right outcome? Yeah. Yeah, because that, that is critical as well. Thank you for all this advice, Keith. It was also really interesting to hear about the 
you know, just what salaries are right now. I think a lot of people are very curious to know if they were to switch industries right now, what can they expect to mm. to um, be paid in the not-for-profit sector? If people want to reach out to you for general advice as a potential candidate or as an organization looking to recruit, what's the best way to reach out to you? Sure. So my email is quite simple. It's keith at cantley.com.au or certainly through LinkedIn if you use LinkedIn. But uh, the, And uh, cantley.com.au is our website. So certainly happy to Anyone to reach out, I'm happy to hear from them. And if I can't help, I've certainly got some connections where I can maybe uh, refer them on or provide them additional advice. Outstanding. Keith, thank you so much for what you do for the not-for-profit space. I know that the process of especially replacing those top roles is, is actually scary to know that you're, you're losing a leader and you have to replace a leader. And it's nice to have someone on board as an advisor to, to support that process and, and also all the learnings from other, other processes that you've been through. Um, especially not-for-profits, I think. It's, it's such a hard job. It's such a hard job to be a CEO in these not-for-profits and to find the right candidate that's going to fit, as you say, the compatibility as well as the capability is um, looking for sometimes a diamond in the rough. Yeah, and the, and the applicant needs to see it more than a job. Mm. If you, you have to see it more than a job uh, is the key thing. And it's, it is a scary thing, and it's scary for everyone. It's scary for the board to make sure they get the right person. It's scary for the applicant who's going, am I the best candidate? You know, if I got the job, can I do this? And it's scary for the people that work with, the staff, that the employees, that, you know, who are we going to get? Is this person going to be okay? Are we, our jobs safe? All those sort of things mm. um, come into mind. So, yeah, and the more we can uh, have a framework and, a, and be transparent about it, the better it will be. Hi, this is Tammy again. When I'm not doing podcasts, I'm helping not-for-profits with IT decisions. The question for this week's IT in plain English segment is, what kind of training is essential for my IT team? For this question, I have just one answer for you. Your team needs more training in Microsoft. While most users are already familiar with the Microsoft Office, Microsoft 365 now provides a huge suite of cybersecurity and IT administration tools that most organizations would use and would have to buy from individual vendors in the past. The challenging part about these tools and IT in general are that they are constantly changing. In fact, it seems like every time I personally log into the back end of Microsoft Azure, some of the tools have changed locations and perhaps even names. That's why it's important to schedule regular training for your IT team. The good thing is that Microsoft offers over 2,000 free courses on their website that range from beginner to advanced skills. And if your team really want a certificate to prove they learned something, it's not too expensive to sit the exam. So there you have it in plain English. If you have an IT question you want answered, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn and send me a message. I just might answer it on the show. And if you liked what you heard, please subscribe and leave me a review. To all of you executives with a cause, the world is definitely a better place because of you. Thank you for what you and your teams do every day.